0: Hello, What Would Jesus Tech listeners. My name is Andrew Noble and you're about to listen to what was a great conversation between Joel and myself and Jake Meter. I really enjoyed it. We dove into you know a discipleship gap that exists the pressures of technology and the technological revolutions the history of that even the uh, the paradox of choice a whole bunch of different subjects that I think will really help you and help you follow Jesus I just want to make a note that there is an, an irony when we were recording this episode that Jake was outside um, in a great picturesque spot, but then a lawn maintenance crew came in the middle of November and kind of interrupted. But because of the benefits of technology of our recording software, uh, we were able to um, remove most of that background noise. So it's kind of a uh, the blessings and curses of technology all wrapped up into this episode. We hope you enjoy it. And uh, just a special thank you as well to our Patreon uh, supporters who support us financially. Thank you. Enjoy this episode.
1: So, we've given people this kind of, or attempted to give them a very broad, capacious range of lifestyle options and choices. And yet, what we've found increasingly is that that leaves people fairly lonely and it radically destabilizes local communities. Having to define our own sense of meaning and purpose in the universe is really hard. And really exhausting, and we need help. And the help comes in the form of what are often quite predatory tech companies that don't actually care about your well being, but they are happy to use your sense of analysis paralysis to enrich themselves.
0: Hello and welcome to What Would Jesus Tech? We are a podcast helping Christians evaluate, use, and build technology as Jesus might have if he had lived today. Uh, Today we're joined by someone who I've been able to learn a lot from over the years. Um, I... Not to give too much of a backstory, but 11 years ago, I was the student union president at a university campus here in Canada, which is totally different than the States when you think of a student body. But the student union, I was navigating these issues of policy as a Christian, environmental issues, gender issues, and I just felt like I did not have a lot of instruction on how to guide me in serving the common good. Um, fast forward five years, Tim Keller recommends a book, writes a forward to a book written by Jake Meter. Jake Meter's with us today, his book, In Search of the Common Good. And I felt all of a sudden this crystallizing idea of how we can serve the common good as Christians, that Christians can care not just for hearts and souls, but for hands and feet, and and this more holistic version of love. Um, Jake has also written, most recently, What Are Christians For?, um, his latest book. He's also written for The Atlantic, First Things, TGC, and of course he's written, um, he's the editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy, where he writes there. Thank you, Jake, for joining us. I uh, appreciate you uh, jumping on. Yeah,
1: thanks for having me on.
0: Um, So, just for listeners to help to get you get to know you better, um, I have a list of speed round questions. So you can only take one or two sentences to answer, um, unless you really need to go long. That's okay, but let's try to keep it short. So, what's one thing you love about your hometown?
2: Um,
1: The size, the neighborhoods, the way it's laid out. And I think that my family's been here since 1946. So we've been here for a long time.
0: Very cool. Uh, When will your kids be allowed to have a cell phone?
1: (laughs) Um, A basic phone, maybe sooner. Smartphone, probably between 16 and 18.
0: (laughs) Okay. Why do changes in carbon emissions matter? Only one or two sentences for this. (laughs)
1: Um, because through a complex series of interactions with the environment, they have direct effects on how millions of people around the world live. Hmm. Very good. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, good. Who are the yeah. thinkers, and who are the thinkers and writers who have most shaped you, outside of scripture?
1: Um, Wendell Berry, J.R. Tolkien. And Martin Bootser, I would say. C.S. Lewis is obviously there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your favorite cocktail? Um, I've been very into Negronis. Lately.
0: Okay, uh, <laughs> why doesn't Mere Orthodoxy, the the publication that you oversee, why doesn't it have word limits for articles? <laughs>
1: um, because we have readers that will read long form stuff. And because there's not any tangible reason we can't run long, like we don't have paper that, like we only have this amount of paper and we can't fill more than that. Um, And because I think it's good to give people things that will stretch them and make it easier for them to appreciate the complexity and nuance of various issues that we cover.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard to do nuance in a tweet. Sometimes you need long form. Um, well, <laughs> last speed round question. What's one book that you recently read that you'd recommend? Uh,
1: well, I will probably be finishing Scrivener's The Air We Breathe later today, which I've already told our local campus pastor with my church that he should read. Um, that one's really good. There's also a book that Lexum just put out called A Quiet Mind to Suffer With. That's about mental health and Christ's presence with us, um, in our suffering and the cross. Um, and that's a really stunning, very unique book that I've not, I don't think I've read anything like this. Um, so those would be the two that spring to mind right away.
0: Awesome. Yeah, we'll I, link to those for people.
2: I did hear about the airy breed a couple times, so I'll probably have to pick that up now.
0: Yeah, it's a good one. Uh-huh. So, thinking about our conversation today, I I don't want to just talk about your book. I want to talk about some of the articles, some of the fu- some of the future, and a lot of it to me centers around discipleship and what you've called a discipleship gap. Um, it seems that there are challenges that we are facing in modernity in 2023, and churches are struggling to form and equip and train people to just be Christian? How do we assess this problem? What What is the problem that you're trying to articulate? I think
1: to just start off kind of on a basic level, when we think about discipleship, at least the way it's talked about in scripture, it's happening in the context of personal relationships, face-to-face interaction, Um it's not really something that you plan or kind of like budget into your schedule, where like you fit in an hour here to do this task. Um, and I don't think it can be because so much. Like this is something I think I've I've had to learn from. I guess I knew it before, but I learned more about it through parenting. Um, your child's needs don't pop up on a schedule. And the way you respond to unscheduled needs, unexpected challenges, um, those are some of the main ways that I think we develop character um, and that we grow. um, And this is just generally growing in virtue, like even apart from specific questions about um, following Jesus. And so I think when life becomes highly compartmentalized, highly scheduled, and also fairly autonomous and lonely in the West, Um, you lose a lot of those encounters where it's like, this person is here with me right now and they need something of me and I need to be able to care for them in this moment. Um, I mean, I feel like my parents and I have talked about this a lot just because what they've seen, my dad suffered a traumatic brain injury eight years ago um and is disabled and so my mom's a full-time caregiver and so she has lots of conversations with other caregivers who do not have her relationship with christ or even if they're christian they maybe don't have 40 years of experience of walking with god um and so there's just often a a sense of almost even resentment um directed at the people they're caring for. And in some sense you can understand that because you know, when you're a caregiver, your life is turned upside down as well, but the ways it's turned upside down are more invisible because you you can still walk, you can still take care of yourself. Um, and you can kind of resent the person who's disrupted your life in that way. Mm. Um, and yet that's a profoundly unhealthy response. Um, and yet it's, I think, a predictable one when we live in a culture where everyone is kind of expected to take care of their own needs, do their own thing, and having to take up burdens that we didn't choose is almost seen as an injustice, I think, by a lot of people. And yet that a world that is like that is going to leave very little room for relationships of care. And discipleship. And it's going to be very corrosive of cultivating Christian Mm -hmm. virtue as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even for myself and my wife, we have found in discipling others and even discipling each other that asking for help is difficult. Mm -hmm. You feel that what you described as like the burdens, you don't want to place burdens on other people. So therefore, you don't ask for help. You don't connect to community because you don't want to create this uh, affront to their autonomy. Um, It's, yeah, Yeah. it can be getting in the way.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, this is interesting because when actually Andrew recommended uh, your recent book to me and I started reading it, it was completely different than what I expected. I thought we were going to be talking about kind of the specific technologies of the day, but as you've just mentioned, you know, um, we're talking about how Christian modern life has changed. It's more focused on like the technology revolutions, you know, the industrial mm-hmm. revolution, the sexual revolution. Um, so, I mean, even just looking at those two, like the two questions I have are, you know, what are the differences between those revolutions? and mm-hmm. you know what similarities are there as well
1: you're asking about the overlap between those different revolutions just so I'm understanding
2: yeah yeah the differences well, the and arc- similarities
1: mm-hmm. the argument i try to make in the second book that i did uh is that there's a through line you can discern in most of the kind of major things we now regard as revolutions in the west um, which is a dissolution of the idea of nature of givenness is the term Marilyn Robinson likes to use um, and uh, a system of thought that wants to make everything a choice. Um, and so take something like the industrial revolution. What that does is it frees people from traditional ways of work, traditional small community connection to land the integration of work and home—it frees you from all of that, so that you can become an independent worker in these highly efficient factories and kind of create your own life. But, like a lot of what we desire in life, is actually rooted in this: it's community, it's connection, it's um, long-term presence with other people, so that we have memories we accumulate together. And so, when you cut someone off from all of those things, Um, a great deal is lost. Um, sexual revolution works in a similar way. Um, we should only like children should be a choice is the underlying logic of the sexual revolution. And so if you aren't able to exercise full, complete, absolute control over your capacity to bear children, you are experiencing an injustice. Um even as you have sex, like if you, if you can't control the consequences of sex, even like a natural consequences as children, um, that's experienced as an injustice. Um, and what mm-hmm. that ends up looping out is it leaves out space for the things we don't choose and yet we need, Um and you can even look at it in the U S right now. There's a study on, it was kind of funny, actually, A UK magazine, presented the data finding as um, unattached childless women are happier. when you actually looked at the data, um, Brad Wilcox flagged this on social media, the, the data they were citing actually said the opposite. Um, or if you look at something in the U.S., like preferred fertility, like they asked women, how many children would you like to have? Um, on average, American women have one fewer child than they would prefer. Um So, we've given people this kind of, or attempted to give them a very broad, capacious range of lifestyle options and choices. And yet, what we've found increasingly is that that leaves people fairly lonely. Um, Increasingly, in the US, it leaves them very open to being radicalized in one direction or another. Um, And it radically destabilizes local communities and society as a whole. Um, so yeah, the, the through line with the revolution idea is that the, the given, the things we receive just by virtue of being human in the world, in a place, in a family, um, if you don't choose those things, they're an injustice. The way Howard Wass puts it is he says, um, many people today believe that they have no story except the story they chose when they had no story. And I've always remembered that line, um, and so what I'm trying to do really in both books, but more explicitly in the second is argue for the goodness of um the life you didn't choose, but the life that you're given um simply by virtue of where you're born and who you're born to, and what kind of place is that? What kind of people are those? who are your neighbors? What is your church like if you attend church um I'm trying to make the argument that there's a great deal of good in embracing all of that, but we miss out on it um, because we think the unchosen is categorically bad.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians about like, hey, wherever you're at in life, please stay there. Like, Be a good Christian where you are already. I see. I totally see your argument, and I think we need to, you know, not succumb to choices being the highest good, autonomy being the highest good. Like we live in Canada, where that relates to end of life issues and it's and beginning of life issues, where it's all about choice, Um, pro choice, right? Um, Instead of pro life, pro what have you been given? You've been given life, steward it. Um, One of the things that I think about with choice, though, is In our current revolution, call it the AI revolution, digital revolution. Joel would know the technicalities of this, but there is a almost. Sometimes it feels like there's less choice. We're we're being fed algorithms. We don't choose what we see in the algorithms. Um, I think Joseph Minnick has talked about this. There, there's almost this sense that we're not as responsible. We're not. We don't have agency. I think he calls it, you know, there's there's, there's a way in which technology takes away choice and the sense of choice, the sense that I am responsible for my actions and I can do good in the world. And this is where Jordan Peterson gets his rise and people appreciate someone saying to them, you are responsible for yourself, make your bed. And people, people really, I think, appreciate that, you know, oh, I am responsible. I do have choice. I do have responsibility. And so how would you reflect on our current moment our, our revolutions with ai and um, these sorts of things that seem to almost take away choice and i almost want to say oh well maybe there is some good in responsibility in autonomy how would you reflect on our current moment and the choices there right
1: so the problem you're going to run into very quickly with this kind of choice maximization idea is that that's actually quite paralyzing. Um, And I mean, there's consumer studies on this that get cited in the marketing world all the time about what they call analysis paralysis, where um, there's a study, I think it was done in the 90s, um, where like a supermarket, they had one supermarket that had like 40 different kinds of jam and another that had six or something like that, a dramatically smaller number. The smaller number sold better. Um, because people, when confronted with this just enormous wall of choices, you almost fear more making the wrong choice um, than you trust yourself to make the right choice. And so you just don't make any choice and you walk away. Um, now, I think when you apply that outward, outwardly, what that ends up meaning is um, we develop kind of crutches and aids that people use to help them make choices. Um and this is where all the tech stuff comes in i mean i think it was eric schmidt gave an interview once where he said the perfect search engine wouldn't have a search page because it would anticipate what you need before you even knew you needed it um and so that's where like wearable tech comes in or if you go like the elon direction like Neuralink stuff would come in um, it would be able to through like kind of daily lifestyle routine indicators or neurological indicators or monitoring like stress levels, be able to tell you, Hey, you should go do this. Um, Mm. And so what ends up happening is having to define our own sense of meaning and purpose in the universe is really hard and really exhausting and we need help. And the help comes in the form of what are often quite predatory tech companies that don't actually care about your well-being, but they are happy to use your sense of analysis paralysis to enrich themselves through new products or through getting you hooked into one of their existing products. Um, I mean, I think about something like TikTok is one of the most nefarious here because their algorithm is so refined at this point. It's so good at identifying what your actual behavior on the app is interested in. And then it kind of has a similar dynamic as YouTube where it's going to focus that more and more and more and more. And often where that's going to lead is to more extreme kind of content that keeps with that basic interest. Um, so there, and especially when you think about things like the rise of AI. Um, we just ran a piece a few weeks ago at Mir O on AI girlfriends and what that could mean. Um, for dating and relationships. Um, There's a lot of really dangerous things that come out of this, but I think it comes out of this kind of one-two move where first we're told you have to choose everything that goes into your identity. Everything about your identity has to be your choice or you're being treated unjustly or oppressed in some way. And then the second step is we say, well, that's really hard. And then... TikTok, Apple, Google, Meta, whoever, can sweep in and say, we know it's hard. Here, we'll help you. And so they end up kind of almost fulfilling a kind of surrogate family type relationship. But it's thought to be more just because you have hypothetically chosen it. And you Mm haven't. You've been given a really impossible task to create your identity out of nothing but your own desire and ambition and pain. And that's hard, if not impossible. And now that you're boxed into that trap, we have lots of products that the capitalist class is happy to give you to help you solve this problem.
2: Yeah, I think so. It's interesting because one of one of the things I felt I struggled with in reading the book is that there does seem to be a strong focus on the negative effects of like these revolutions and even like the, the current revolution. Um, So what I'm curious is like, do you think it's possible that we could have passed and progressed through these different revolutions in a way that actually falls in line with scripture? Um, You know, you mentioned something about technological like competency. Is there an alternative path where it could have pushed us closer? to God.
1: Yeah. Um that is something I think
2: about a lot and
1: I'm still kind of figuring out how I how to mm-hmm. best answer that. Um I find the work of Ivan Illich really helpful. And Illich distinguishes in his work between convivial tools. I'm sorry guys.
0: Um it's okay. convivial tools for, for contents industrial. to our listeners, there's uh there's some machinery going on around jake because he went from one location to another that was supposed to be better so there might be a little bit of background noise but thanks to technology hopefully some technology <laughs> right. powers will remove it um slight irony there sorry jake to interrupt continue no, you're fine you're fine i'm trying to like do this
1: outside in a really like peaceful quiet idyllic setting and then all of the modern lawn care machinery turns up <laughs> So there's what, a, of what a parable! Here. Yeah, yeah. Turns up to do yard work on like a 45 degree day in November. <laughs> um, yeah. So what Illich does, develops um, in his books, "Deschooling Society" and "Tools for Conviviality," is his concept of conviviality, which he sets against industrialism. Um, Industrialism is kind of inherently inhumane for Illich because of the ways it diminishes um, human independence and capacity. Um, It kind of forces you into fixed tracks, um, which I think is reconcilable with what we were just saying, because what happens is you maximize choice. That's paralyzing. The tech companies have the solution, and the solution is often these very fixed tracks that we find ourselves on. Um, And what Illich would say is we should be thinking about how does, how do technologies and tools that we use equip us to live more neighborly with other people, to interact with the world in more fruitful, life-giving, enjoyable ways, um, rather than simply exerting control and dominance over it. So I like that question a lot, um, that thought a lot. The other thing that I just, and I don't know what what to do with this in particular, is that just on a, like, how to feed the world level, um, the human population globally has grown so much in the last 100 years, 150 years, um, and the tools that we know will feed that many people are largely the kind of post-World War II green revolution agricultural technologies that we developed, which I think have been pretty disastrous for, I mean, I live in Nebraska, we're an agriculture state. Um, The average age of of a typical farmer in Nebraska is like 56, I think. Um, We don't know where the next generation of farmers is going to come from. And so I see all of the problems that that technology has created and yet, if we went back to the yields that we had on crops 120 years ago, that would mean a lot of people starve. And so there's very basic kind of concrete questions about tech that I see daily just living in an ag state in the Midwest. Um, and like there are people, there's a group called the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, that is doing a lot of work on these kind of things. Um That have had some really interesting promising developments around organic ag and sustainable ag um and so there might be some solutions here but i just don't know what they are and even there the way that the land institute is working is they're they're not doing the full-on like 1950s green style green revolution stuff but they're also not doing a pure like pre-modern ag either by any stretch So like, that's one of the things that that's probably the single biggest problem that I think about. And I don't know what to do with because just feeding a planet with 8 billion people on it requires a lot of food technology that didn't exist 75 years ago and has in a lot of ways been pretty bad for my home place. And yet the alternative Mm -hmm. I see is masturbation, which is unthinkable. So yeah, like there's questions like that where I just feel unsettled. Um, but probably the most helpful voice I've found is Ivan Illich.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I think, I think to... oh, I mean, go, go ahead, ahead Andrew. Oh, okay. Well, I was well, just riffing on the delay. Just riffing on kind of that, that point about like, could the industrial revolution actually have happened in a way where people weren't pushed from like an agricultural type society to an industrial Mm -hmm. working society um there's you know there's been actually like five industrial revolutions and like the next one seems to be related to ai and if you like talk to some like real tech futurists they'll be like you know we're gonna actually create a world of like so much abundance that you're not going to have to work to you know be in a factory or anything like that you'll just have um the money you'll have the food you'll have like the ability to spend time with your family and choose to do, and there's that choice thing. Choose to spend more time uh, with those around you. So I think like there are, you know, future revolutions that could go a different direction than the past ones, um, and that might relate to kind of what you touched on with technological technological competency and like what we should be thinking about. But I, I didn't actually find too much detail on kind of like what might be a good place to start looking into, you know, for the people yeah. who are building the next revolution.
1: Um I think I'm a little more skeptical of some of those claims, just because I mean Kynes was saying this stuff a hundred years ago in the nineteen thirties about the future of work. Um and that hasn't really panned out. Um and so my my hunch here, although obviously I could be wrong, is that tech will continue to change, but apart from some pretty substantial structural adjustments. And even then, I don't know that it would work, but like what's happened in the US is that the high earners, the high earners now work far more than they used to actually And the more working class people, their wages haven't kept up with inflation. That's getting better in the U.S. in the last couple of years. Um, But also they're having to work more hours. And so it creates this very weird kind of system where, yeah, there's lots of consumer goods that are cheaper than they were 50 years ago. Um, There's a lot of consumer goods. Oh, the irony. Years ago. Like, TVs. Um. And yet, like, in the U.S., um, housing, healthcare, and education costs have skyrocketed so much that, like, my generation, I'm a millennial, probably is not going to be better off financially than our parents. I'm guessing my kid's generation won't be better off than us. Um. See, I I think I just don't have the same confidence in some of the futurist predictions, although I absolutely could be wrong. Uh, I mean, the other just, like, full transparency piece to your question is I was reading Illich more after I finished that book. And so Illich is who's given me more ideas here, and I just didn't have him in my head as much while I was reading. I had him a little bit, but not as much as I do now.
0: Right. There's a a recently, Neil Postman's Technopoly. He has this one section where he says for every old world belief or habit, um, there is a technological alternative. So to prayer, the alternative is penicillin. To family roots, the alternative is mobility. To reading, the alternative is television. To restraint, the alternative is immediate gratification. To sin, the alternative is psychotherapy," um, end quote. That's all him, and I. And there is this kind of move away, and not that the old world was perfect. You talk about that in the book as well, it, it, in some of the flaws, colonialism, different things going around in the eighteen hundreds. Um, but yeah, there there is this kind of difficulty where tech is seen as the solution. Like Joel and I have. Disagreed on this before, where he's like, "Well, the future could be better," and he's optimistic, and I'm far more cautious. Um, I I do you you work Jake at a tech company in a way you you run a website that is taking advantage of the internet, and there is kind of this outreach program that you're doing. Um, it's not the same in terms of the technology um, the, of other technologies that are more invasive, etc. But it's interesting for me to reflect on. You know, the value of, we're doing a podcast right now. There, there is this value there. There seems to be this necessity going back to the very beginning, the discipleship problem. We kind of need to do something with the current technology tools that are available. Um, I, I just wonder what that looks like, what, what your goals are, even for mere orthodoxy as, you know, working against the grain of, the technological alternatives that are currently in play?
1: That's a good question. So this is an ongoing kind of conversation I have in my own head and with other people. One of the things we're trying to do even more so now, and it's going to continue to be an emphasis for the foreseeable future, is we want to be committed to the print issue and we wanna build out our email list um, and also build out our members chat and build things like that, um, which minimize the degree to which we're dependent on algorithms that we don't control and that in our view tend to incentivize behaviors that we don't want to engage in. And so fortunately, I think because of the way we've handled things traditionally, um direct traffic is actually our largest traffic source um now if you know things about analytics software direct traffic that's not all people who like punched in the url into the nav bar on their browser it's lots of things sometimes it's just incorrectly labeled social or search traffic but we've never been in a position where like well we have to keep doing twitter because if we got off twitter We wouldn't have a viable institution like that's not our situation um and so what we're trying to do now is basically align our actual tech choices with the values that we've had around tech all along and so we're trying to focus on email more because that's a direct line to our readers rather than something that's mediated through meta or twitter um I mean, there's some noise there around like getting into the inbox versus spam or getting into the primary inbox versus social um, right. but it's much less dependent on algorithms than emphasizing everything on Facebook and Twitter or whatever else you might use um so i'd like to think that what we're doing is basically the way illich would approach these kind of things if he were alive today i don't know that for a fact obviously because he passed away a long time ago but um those are the kind of things we're trying to think about and how do we how do we use this technology to reach people um but to reach people with something that's actually good that's not going to just radicalize them Um, And to call them into deeper thought, better habits of thought, um, and to Mm -hmm. see new ways that they honor God through the use of their mind as they go about their day. So those are the kind of things we're thinking about, and tools can be used to help us with that. The tools we're most interested in right now would be things like email and RSS, um, rather Mm -hmm. than social media algorithms. The one exception there being YouTube. I'm interested in YouTube, and the reason for that is that there's not the same kind of, um, well, first off, I I just, I have very specific concerns about TikTok, just because of the ownership structure. Um, YouTube has some of the same problems that TikTok has, but also it's easier to do long-form video on YouTube. And so that is something we're interested in, where we would be more at the mercy of algorithms. But even there, that's kind of website, email, and podcasts are all of much more direct concern to us right now than YouTube. YouTube is more of a kind of like future project we might, li- we would like to pursue, but we're just not there yet. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, it almost feels like a two pronged attack, two pronged approach. One is really good digital content that's cautious of some mediums versus others. And then there's also the embodied churches relationships um, presence as well. Like it's it's both and. Um, one thing as I was reading, well, listening back to the book, um, just in preparation for talking to you, I came across this quote again, and I loved it before I loved it again. Um, it's by Clyde Kilby. He says he had like these resolutions for mental health, and this goes back to like the physical life that we live. We are physical creatures. And he says, once every day, I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, or a person. I shall not then be concerned at all to ask what they are, but simply be glad that they are. And there's just like a beauty in... Just our embodied presence, like looking at things. You talk in the book about ecology, like Adam's first job was to look at things <laughs> and name them, right? Look at God's creation. Sometimes it feels like Christians, with their emphasis on a relationship with God, think that the world was created in one day rather than six. Um, like we skip the first five. Let's just talk about humans and our relationship with God. It's like, well, what about the rest? Are those things good? Um, is nature good? Um, and is, I like my question for you is, how do we encourage Christians in this, this other prong? You've talked a little bit with mere orthodoxy as this digital level, one prong of the strategy, the other prong of like embodied living, discipleship, community, nature. What would be your recommendations for Christians trying to pursue that avenue of their spiritual growth?
1: Um, I think they're loading up the lawn or lawn equipment. So this is good. Um, So I think the first thing I would say is we should just be um, doing what we can to normalize in our churches, asking for and giving practical aid to people. Um, Like this is something that we try to do in our house where we just like, Our friends that have kids at church, we want them to know if something comes up and you need someone to wash your kid for a little bit, you can drop them off with us and you don't have to feel weird about asking for that. we love to do that. And if that can be helpful to you, just let us know. Um, I mean, the flip side to that is part of normalizing that is also being willing to ask for that kind of help yourself, which is almost the harder thing, I think, for a lot of people. Um. So that would be one thing that comes to mind. Um, I think another thing would be trying to think through, like, what are the things you can do in your day-to-day life to be available to, I mean, your neighbors or people from church? Um, One of the hindrances that we run into a lot just locally in our own communities is that people are all really, really busy um, because they have kids activities or they have a really high demand, stressful job. Um, I mean, it could be any number of things. They have a long commute, um, not so much in Lincoln, but if you get into other American cities, somebody might spend two hours a day in their car, just commuting to and from work or on a bus or a train or something like that. So trying to just think through what are the things I can do with my schedule to make myself more available so that I can offer these kind of informal day-to-day gestures of care. Um, I think that's really important. The other thing I've been thinking about more, I brought this up at TGC um, a little bit ago. If you read, so like I mentioned Bootser at the start of the podcast, he, um, he was an early Protestant reformer. And the kind of heartbeat of Bootser's entire thought was, how do we help like fallen, finite, sinful human creatures live in Christian love with one another within a Christian society? Um, that's Bootser's like primary concern that runs through his entire ministry for 30 years. Um, and so he gets really practical. And so like at TGC, I shared a little bit of what he wrote about deacons. Um, there's a certain sense in which for Bootser, the most important job a deacon has is just to pay attention. Um, know who in your community needs work, know who in your community needs money, um, Know where the people who need work can go to get work. Um, Know the people who maybe need money, but they don't want to say that because they feel like they should be able to take care of themselves. And there are other people who have greater needs than them, et cetera, et cetera. Know who those people are and care for them. Um, All of those things you have to be paying attention to be able to do. And so, and that of course also relates to the whole topic of place because it is hard to pay attention to a place that you don't know well. And so if you're moving every two years, you're not gonna get to know a city well enough to know like this person needs help, there's these three ministries that can support them. If you're hopping from church to church every couple years because that youth ministry wasn't the right fit, I don't like that pastor's preaching, etc all of which those can be reasons to leave but if you're if you're moving constantly you're never going to develop that kind of data bank of knowledge that you gain from just being attentive to what's going on around you and a lot of being able to love people well it's not really about intention um lots of people intend to be kind loving generous people um it's more, or not more, but it, it's also about availability and knowledge and competence. And so, cultivating those things is huge for being able to build those kind of thick memberships within local churches.
2: Hmm. I got a kind of interesting thought experiment about the potential future. So, if you mm-hmm. take, you know, two hundred strong christians and you put them on starship and they go to mars you know to start a colony there <laughs> they will have this tight-knit community where they're all relying on each other they're hopping from place to place they're building a whole new colony you know it does does mm-hmm. almost feel like it could fall more in line with uh you know an embodied community Um,
1: I suppose I need to think about it more, um, potentially there's all kinds of kind of questions about ecology and physical provisioning and work and (laughs) all kinds of things that are going to happen through up to now, not really developed tech and we don't know just by definition we can't know how that tech would shape our relationship to work or how it would shape our relationship to neighbor because we don't have it yet so i'm not going to say no because i just don't know enough but there are just lots of kind of open questions in that scenario that i would want to have a better sense of before i get a more definitive answer um but no like one of the things I, i have a good friend who's really did not like the way I used Arendt in the second book, because Hannah Arendt talks about the space race as the kind of culmination of modernity, because modernity begins with man turning away from God, his father, and now it peaks with man turning away from the earth, his mother. Um, and I defended it with him a little bit because Arendt is quoting Russian and American scientists who do speak of it in exactly those terms. Um, But my friend's point was, there's not anything inherent in Christian revelation that would forbid us from space exploration. So why would you structure your argument that way? And I think that's interesting. I just, he's still, he wants to write kind of a fairly definitive long form essay on this, and he's got a lot of things going on. So he has not written that yet. But I'm looking forward to when he does, because I want to read it. (laughs)
0: yeah, yeah. interesting i mean it it's uh it relates some to c.s lewis's space trilogy and the way that he saw other worlds but that's a whole yes. whole other uh direction the conversation um could go in why should people read the space trilogy jake
1: a lot of them so there's a lot of reasons um trying to organize my thoughts because there's so many things I could
0: say. Um, I'll say one thing and then you can. Yeah, go for it. Sure. Sorry. Um, but yeah, no, I would say one of the things that it did for me is help re-see the world, uh, re-see the sky in particular. Um, so mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis yeah. talks about the heavens in a way that I hadn't heard before, and the way in which isn't it natural for humans to look up and almost associate the stars, um, the heavens together, like like not to not to separate the material reality of yeah. physical stars with heavens. There's actually supposed to be an association. Like when my kids look mm-hmm. up to the sky, I'm okay with saying, "Yeah, that's where the heavens are." You know, we don't want to so mm-hmm. crunch. Uh, biblical imagery that we take away some of the beauty of that language. Um, And so that's one thing that the trilogy did for me.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, even on that, there's something Lewis says, I think it's in Dawn Treader where one of the characters says, but in our world, stars are only balls of gas. And Lewis, the other character replies, no, that is merely what they are made of. It is not what they are. Um, so just developing the mental categories to make those kind of distinctions is really important. Um so I think the space trilogy there's the line I think it's Walter Hooper said it um what Lewis thought about anything is pre- or everything is present in what he said about anything. It's something like that. You truly get the like fully orbed scope of Lewis's thought from the space trilogy in a really striking arresting and I think beautiful way. Um, and it, it isn't, it shouldn't surprise you. Like so Lewis and Tolkien were close friends when Lewis began work on the space trilogy. And the idea was originally that Lewis was going to write a series of books about space travel and Tolkien was going to do time travel and the projects were going to link up yeah. and Tolkien never wrote his, cause he was a perfectionist who very rarely finished anything. Um, but if you look closely, like in That Hideous Strength, there are references to Numenor, which is from Tolkien's um, Legendarium and The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion and all those books. Um, so I think you, you get the full scope of how Lewis thought about reality in the Space Trilogy in a really profound way. Um, there's other really interesting little individual things. Like Lewis was a master at language, and he was actually quite funny. But a lot of his books, the humor doesn't come across. You get it in um, screw tape. Screw tape's really funny. Um, and a big part of Lewis's skill with language was how he could kind of hear and then mimic dialect really well. And especially that hideous strength, he skewers like modern tech business jargon just mercilessly in that book, especially with the character of Wither. Um, So that's really interesting. Another thing that I thought about, um, there are themes of environmentalism in Lewis's and Tolkien's work that is easy to kind of slide over, but it's very clear in, especially Out of the Silent Planet and That Hideous Strength, that Lewis has those concerns And the way those concerns get expressed is actually very interesting to modern readers. Um, We did an essay. um, We had an essay from Holly Ordway in one of the print issues about Tolkien on some of these things. And one of the points that Holly made in her piece was that um, when these guys were writing their books, we were not that far removed from scientific racism, eugenics, things of that sort. And both Lewis and Tolkien's books go out of their way to portray, quote unquote, primitive peoples in very dignifying, honoring ways. And so you see that with the way the different Martian species are portrayed in Out of the Silent Planet. And you also see it with the wild men in Return of the King. Um, There's even a a scene in Return of the King where um, um, Eomir is kind of talking down to one of the wild men like he's this kind of ignorant primitive. And Theoden, the king, corrects them. So there's, um, if you're attuned to kind of history of ecological discourse and also racial discourse, there's some interesting stuff going on in those books. Um, And I also just think that that Hideous Strength, it's Lewis's weirdest book. Tolkien hated it. It's probably my favorite book of Lewis's. Um, The imagination, the humor, the creativity. Um, all of it is just so present throughout the volume and it's weird and it's kind of unwieldy. Um, it's a much trippier book than the first two, but I have just always loved it. I actually, am writing an essay about bureaucratic language in that hideous strength for a volume that Davenant is putting out next year. Um, so it's been on my mind a lot for that reason, but yeah, there's so much there, um, and once you read those, then you go back and read Narnia or Till Have Faces or his apologetics work. And you're going to notice some of the things that you didn't get the first time because he he hits them at a different angle in the sci-fi trilogy.
0: Well, cool. I knew you'd uh, get to we'll some go good go stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I love those. Uh, we'll we'll uh, not take too much more of your time. Joel, did you have one more question? I don't want to cut you off.
2: No, no. No, I think, you know, we've got got a lot, and I'm also very interested in how things shape out for the future. Can it bring us closer together, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the technology. Yeah. Well, Jake, thanks so much for your time. Sorry, go ahead,
1: Jake. I said we're in Canada, Japan, and the U.S. right now doing a call, so it brought us closer in that sense. So. (laughs)
0: Yeah it did it did despite the modern technology trying to mow the lawn around you um we were still able to get through this episode one way or the other yeah, uh, Thank you for uh, joining us, Jake, and thank you to our listeners for uh, listening all the way through to the end. We appreciate um, you listening, and we hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. Um, again, my name's Andrew Noble. I was joined by Joel Jacob, my co-host, and Jake Meter of Mere Orthodoxy. Uh, you can check out mereorthodoxy.com. It's a solid website, good articles. Some of them are long. Some of them take you an hour to read, um, and some of them are, are five-minute reads, too, but there's a lot of good stuff. Um, that they're producing and I would encourage you to check that out Um, and yeah follow us uh, what would Jesus tech we're trying to help Christians use tech how, how Jesus would if he lived today trying to reflect on it well and so thank you for listening and take care bye everybody see ya